Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast, where we promote, educate, inspire, and entertain creators of all things related to fantasy and science fiction. Hi, this is Carson with Troy, and I have with me Dito Abbott, whose debut novel, um, Debunked, came out uh, just a few months ago. Dito, uh, thank you so much for getting on with me today. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about, about Debunked and about yourself. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Carson. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, so Debunked is my debut YA fantasy novel, and it's, do you want me to talk about the plot, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay. go ahead and like, do a sales pitch for it. Okay, my elevator pitch is Indiana Jones meets Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's the story of the world's worst explorer goes missing for the sixth time in two years. And when he doesn't show up in a random part of the globe again, this time his friends and family have to admit he's finally gone and they have a funeral. And that's when the assassins attack and his grandchildren, Ozymandias and Alexandria, get swept up into a huge adventure and pulled into another world where they discover that maybe their grandfather is the greatest explorer in history. Perfect. Um, it sounds super interesting. How did you come up with the story for this? Where did it come from? Well, I love exploration and I love maps. Uh, I grew up overseas. So uh, I was born in Puerto Rico, lived in Saudi Arabia for 12 years, and then my family went uh, sailing. And we actually did a circumnavigation on a sailboat, and that took about 11 years. And then uh, uh, about four years ago, we got a boat ready and sailed. We we're going to sail across uh, the Pacific from Florida to Australia, and we made it as far as the Galapagos. And then COVID shut the Pacific down, and so we sailed to the Sea of Cortez. So I'm very much uh, a fan of maps and adventure and travel, and so when I was thinking about what I want in a book, the first stop was adventure. And then maps are, I, I just, I have a love of fantasy and fantasy maps and I love humor in books. And so everything coalesced into, well, what would happen if the world's worst explorer, Sir Quidby Forsyth III, uh, went missing? Nice. And I noticed on your website that you have a field guide too for Sir Quibbly. Yes, uh, that's uh, the Debunking Field Manual and Bathroom Companion. Uh, that book is, it's a small novella that I've put together to reward people if they sign up for my mailing list at detoabbott.com. Uh, they can uh, get Sir Quidby Forsyth's Debunking Manual. And it's a list of uh, like a hundred things that he's learned over the years when he's been exploring and uh Eventually, I want to expand that and make it like a companion novel uh, to the Terra Venom uh, Chronicles. But for now, it's just a free novella. That's that's awesome. Uh, I was reading a little bit about it, and you know some of the, you know the tips and and the hundred things that he's learned, and it's it's hilarious. So, no, thanks, man. No, I think that's uh, fantastic for somebody that you know wants to set up for a newsletter or whatever to get like a little taste of what you have to offer. So. Um, it looks fantastic. So I, I also read that, you know, you were in a band and then you decided you wanted to write a fantasy novel, which you thought would be easy, but it wasn't. What were some of the challenges you had as you were writing this, this novel and how, like, 
what was kind of the process? Like how many edits did you have to do and um, what struggles you had? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I've done a lot of different creative things over the years and they all kind of snowball into each other. Uh, and so the biggest project I did before writing this novel was I took three and a half years and I made a stop motion music video. Uh, and I did that in my garage and it was a three and a half year process. It's pretty exhausting. And I, and I had to learn about the perseverance and about little steps every day. And those lessons from that project played a huge role in writing a novel. And so the, the biggest challenge for me is I tend to be perfectionistic and your first draft, you have to be okay with it being terrible. And so a lot of authors will start a book and they get mired in the swamp of imperfection and they consistently slow themselves down to the point where there's no joy in the process. There's no pleasure in it and it becomes a slog. And so for me, uh, the biggest challenge was it, it took me three years to write this book. And now I see on this side of it, I, I ask other authors and that's not uncommon. Some people take 10 years, some people take three months. Um, but the one common thread in all of that is most are terrible and it's all about the revision process. And so that was probably my biggest lesson was I did 12 revisions of this novel. It started out at 134,000 words and ended at 108,000. So I cut, uh, I don't know, 25% of the book away and made it better. So that was probably the, the biggest lesson was being okay with it being bad until I could make it good. No, that's great advice. Um, I, you know, as a writer myself, I don't have a book out yet, but I have been lost in that minutia of perfection as well. You know, getting slogged in that um, itty bitty ticky tack things of, you know, all oh, this word isn't spelled right, right. Got to go back and do it or that sentence. Is it? But, you know, like you said, like revisions, that's where um, that stuff can happen. And you did 12 revisions of that book. Um, did you get frustrated at all or did you just have, you know, you, you said you learned persistence from um, making that video. Um, is there any time in that 12 revisions that you're like, no, I'm just, nope, this isn't what I'm going to do. And how, and if it did, how did you overcome that? Okay. The stop motion project, I definitely encountered that where there was like a whole six month period where I was like, I cannot go into that garage and move those figures for another minute. And then eventually I had been through the process uh, and that particular project went really well. And it, I had a big uh, premiere at a local theater and like I saw the rewards and the excitement from that. So I knew what lie, uh, what lay on the lie lays. I know what's on the other side <laughs> of finishing a project. Uh, so with this one, I don't think I ever reached the point where I was like, man, I can't do this anymore. I want to quit. Um, because I really wanted to know, can I write a book? I love reading books. Can I write an adventure? My goal was I wanted to write a book that 13 year old Dito would have kept on his bedside table and read five times a year. And so I wanted to see if I could do it. And along the way, 
uh, and since you're an author, you probably know this, uh, along the way, my shift changed from can I do this to oh, wow, this is really awesome. It's like fun to be that creative. And I discovered the power of words in a new way. Uh, like as an example, uh, I'm holding a chapstick in my hand right now. And if we said this is uh, the spaceship uh, lime green flying through the Zebulon Nebula and crashing on the planet Droxar, in one sentence, we created a world. One sentence, we created a spaceship flying through a new place, landing on a new planet. And like, that's incredible, like the power of words. And if we changed the name of the planet and added that there are aliens living there, now we've created a culture. And so I've never done anything as powerful with that kind of creative intent. So I found that fueling. It was so creatively fueling. Uh, I, the, the biggest challenge I had outside of the writing of this book was getting my, I had to get an editor, like I hired a great editor, uh, Steve Parolini at The Novel Doctor. I recommend him. He did a great job. And getting my cover art sorted. Uh, I'm an artist. Uh, like if you go to my website, you'll see there's a world map and, and I drew that myself. And it took me about a year to finish it because it's very detailed, but I knew from reading and listening to article, uh, podcasts and reading articles, listening to people who know what they're talking about, that most authors struggle to design their own covers. And a lot of times because it's hard for us to step outside of the, I wanna have a beautiful piece of art to, I need to have a cover that tells people who love my kind of, and so getting the right cover artist was a, was a pretty big challenge and getting uh, the proofreading and like scheduling that in. Cause it's, it's not like I finished my draft. And I go, now it's time to get it proofread or edited. And then I email someone and they say, oh, send it on over. Cause the good editors usually have like a three or four month wait. And the good cover designers have a four or five month wait at least. And so that was probably the, the biggest logistical thing I didn't anticipate because I, I was lost in my own world, and uh, once once I learned that, like this time, what I'm going to do, I'm writing volume two now, uh, I'm going to schedule, once I get towards the end of the rough draft, I'll schedule my proofreader, and I'll get my cover designer going, so that uh, I'm gonna, I worked with Kirk DuPont at Dog Ear Designs, and he's fantastic. Uh, great guy to work with really creative and just professional all day long he knows uh hey that's great i love your ideas but we should sell some books too and so that's his perspective so um, i will get them lined up earlier that would be advice i'd give anyone no that's great advice um how long did it take you to find your editor and your cover artist because that's one of the things when um you decide to become a self-published author you know, you're not just in charge of the writing, you're in charge of finding an editor who's competent that can do your book um, well, and also have a cover artist that has a cover that designed to sell your book, because ultimately, that's kind of what you want to do is sell your book. I mean, I'm sure there's other people that don't. But for most people that write a book want to sell it. Um, what was that process like? And how long did it take you to find uh, good people for both of those? That's a really good question. Uh, because it's everyone has to ask it. I mean, in my opinion, if you're going to 
go to all the trouble to write and publish a book with the intent of actually selling it and having a professional product, I think you have to get an editor who's a pro. And I think you're wise to get a cover designer who's a pro. So the way I found Steve, I actually went to Joanne Penn's website. She does the Creative Pen podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I recommend that because she's in the trenches writing books and she's also more than anyone has her finger on the pulse of where publishing is going. She's fascinated by, by uh, the, the trends and technology. So the website, she had a list of publishers, uh, sorry, uh, of editors that I don't know if she'd used or if they came recommended, but Steve, the guy I found, I went down and I looked at about 20 different websites and read as much as I could about the editors. And then when I got to Steve's, it made me laugh. And since his writing was just well constructed and thoughtful, but also funny, uh, like I knew my book is, this is heavily inspired by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. My favorite author is like Terry Pratchett. So uh, I needed an editor who was going to have a sense of humor or this was going to be a terrible uh, match because uh, everyone likes different books and the guy who edits uh, thrillers or uh, paranormal romance may not be the right guy to edit my book, which is humorous fantasy that's a fun adventure. And so I contacted Steve, looked at his prices. With him, I actually did a developmental edit. I did like, uh, so there's different kinds of editing. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but just for your listeners, there's uh, a simple breakdown would be proofreading, copy editing, developmental editing. And each of those developmental is like, all right, let's shepherd this into the best story it can be. Big picture copy editing is let's clean up all the pros and make it so it's said as well as it can be in your voice. And then proofreading is making sure the grammar and the stylings are uh, up to standard. So with Steve, I did developmental, which was really helpful as a, as my first novel. Honestly, I just needed someone who knew what they were doing to say, yeah, no, you've got yourself something here. <laughs> and so that was, it was just a confidence booster. And he helped me also trim fat. I had to uh, cut some scenes out. I had, uh, I, he probably took, I'd say with his advice, I took 15,000 words out or so, and it made for a better story. Usually shorter is better. And then I also had him do a copy edit uh, because I tend to, I revise it 12 times. I'm a clean writer anyways. Like I tend to not struggle so much with spelling or punctuation. Uh, his, he didn't have huge like the things that he put in always made it better. And at, at the very least, it made me think about why is that there? Is that really funny? Okay, I should get rid of that. Okay, that's just me being egotistical. And having that voice was really worthwhile. So uh, I recommend getting a professional editor to everyone. And I'll do that again for my next book. Uh, as far as a cover designer goes, that was a bit of a 
challenge. So what I do, probably like you do, or anyone who's writing a book is when we see a cover, we go, wow, who did that? Then we find the name, we look at their other stuff in their portfolio, and then we bookmark it. And so I have a file on my uh, browser that probably has 150 different artists and cover designers. And what I discovered is that uh, it really matters what style someone does. And I initially booked a artist who was an excellent cover designer. His stuff was great, but it wasn't right for my kind of book. And he was totally uh, willing to try and we worked together and we tried to make it happen. And it just wasn't a good match. And so eventually we said, okay, uh, let's just part ways. Uh, you know, it took a lot of extra time, but uh, that would be my advice to anyone is look at the portfolio and make sure that the person you're working with is naturally designing in a style that is going to fit what you do. I know that seems obvious and it sounds obvious coming out of my mouth, but it was a lesson I had to learn. No, that's great advice for both an editor and a cover artist. You need to match um, what they can do and what your book is all about. Um, as somebody who's writing, if they're just, you know, doing this for the first time and they're like, okay, now I have to find an editor. Lots of people will think I just have to find an editor, but that's not always the case. You have to find one um, that is in your particular genre that usually knows kind of what people are looking for, um, the tropes that are involved and, you know, stuff like that. The same with a, a cover artist and your cover is fantastic. You know, it, it gives off a sense of adventure. Just looking at it, you have, you know, the airship, you have a, like an alien looking thing with the eye coming out, you got lightning, like you, you kind of know, you know, and of course the map, you, you're huge in map. You, you kind of know exactly what's you're getting kind of what to expect. And that's a great cover, you know, with, if you can look at it and be like, okay, I, I know what this is going to be. Yeah. So. Thanks for that. Yeah. Kirk did an awesome job. Yeah. No, he did. So when you met or you contacted your editor, you said you revised it 12 times. Was that with the editor or did you go through it a couple times before you sent it in? I went through it eight times before I contacted him. Then he had, uh, I'd say, what was it, about three months before he had space to edit it. So I revised it two more times before I sent him one. And he actually quoted me a price on a bigger manuscript. And then by the time I sent it to him, I'd knocked another 20,000 words off of it or so. And so uh, he, he got a much better book than he was bargaining for because I was like, well, I have this time. I should just keep uh, working on it. And what I'm hoping is that volume two of the, the time consuming, I don't mind revising. It's actually fun. Uh, I think, uh, but I want to be better sooner is my hope. Mm -hmm. Now, and you're working on number two now, um, what are some of your writing habits? My good ones or bad ones? Both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll start with my bad writing habits are, uh, I'll be like, you know what? I should really read what I wrote yesterday just to make sure, uh, just to get back up to speed. And so I'll read what I wrote yesterday. You're like, no, 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 no. 
his hair isn't gray, it's more of a, a dark brown. And then I start, but how is it blowing in the wind? Oh, yes, it was definitely a breed. And then I ended up writing what I wrote yesterday again today. And that's in the revision phase, I think, a lot more acceptable than and productive than in the rough draft phase. So my, my bad habits are overanalyzing too much in my rough draft, for sure. Uh, and my good habits are I'm determined to write every day. And I'm trying to be good about upping my word count goal. But at the very least, I want to write every day. And so that's, that's a decent habit that I'm trying to make a great habit. Yeah, for me, a lot of this comes down to I've got to just relax early on and then allow the, allow the mistakes to be there. And uh, you know who Hugh Howie is? Do you know Hugh Howie? I don't. Well, he's a guy that he's kind of like the godfather of indie publishing uh, in sci-fi. And in the early 2000s or mid-2000s, and it was called Wool. And then he started having that word was getting spread. People were saying, where can I buy this? He's like, it's free. And anyhow, it compounded and he wrote more and he worked hard and he, he was writing other things too. Um, but it really took off. And he, to the point that now, if you go to your bookstore, it's probably there. It's in your library. It's in your bookstore, the Wool series. It's actually being filmed for i think apple tv right now oh nice uh and he's got two or three series that are or that are getting filmed and the point is he knows what he's talking about and he was one of the first guys to ever turn down large advances from traditional publishers in favor of saying look oh i've already got this platform but i'd like to partner with you in a hybrid approach and so he was he's really on the forefront of that and so he's worth listening to and on his, I would tell this to any writers, uh, I read him periodically. On his blog, he has posts up about how to approach writing in a successful way and not just uh, being creative and writing a rough draft and revising, but also in how to approach publishing and the choices you make. I would, if you're writing a book, I would definitely go to Hugh Howey's website and read his posts. I think they're written in 2017, but. Uh, really worthwhile. Um, and going back to, you know, you're in charge of everything. Um, how have you been able to keep up with marketing? What have you de- been able to do and what have you found successful? Well, to start with, there's a, there's another good podcast. I keep promoting everyone else, but <laughs> there's so many good things out there. Uh, and as you can see, like as an indie publisher or a self publisher, it can be overwhelming because I'm here talking about like eight different indie publishing sources that are worth listening to. And some of them contradict each other. Some of them have had different things work. And so it can be overwhelming and you can get lost easily. For me, I've only had my book out a month. So I'm still figuring out uh, how to market it. But one of the big surprises was most people who are having success with indie publishing are doing it on the strength of their backlist. So it's a lot easier to make a career or a living when you have 20 books that are each pulling in, say, even 20 books at $50 a month. Uh, 
that's a thousand dollars a month if you only have one book out the common thread of wisdom is write another book nothing advertises your first book like your second book and that is as i'm seeing now really good advice but at the same time it's kind of frustrating because you go through so much to get one book out you're like hey shouldn't we at least you know celebrate this and like and and be able to sell it and got two marketing approaches going on one is the online sales and the other is in-person sales and from my indie days uh, when i when i was in a indie rock band too many drummers uh we used to do concerts and we'd have a merch table and so after the show we'd go and we'd talk to people and we'd sell cds and i loved the merch table it was always my favorite part because i just it's awesome to meet people and hang out and uh connect and when you met me at Phoenix Fan Fusion, which is a Comic-Con mm-hmm. uh, at the end of May, that was my first live event. And so I knew from my rock days that you got to have a table that draws people in and you've got to have a professional product. So you want to you want to put your best foot forward. But I had so I went to the trouble of like printing the big banner for the background and the table runner and getting everything set up so that I'd be like, Hey, even if I don't sell one book, at least people will know I'm serious. And, uh, at Phoenix fan fusion, there were, it was awesome. It was so fun. And the first day I was like, Oh man, I just hope I sell one book. And I ended up selling like 90 books over those three days. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, and for some authors that would be small potatoes for sure, but for me, with just one book out and not ten books that I'm selling, I was just thrilled. I'm still thrilled, and so uh, it was exciting to meet so many people and connect with them, but also to give them to over deliver, give them the best book I could with the best experience, and because of that, I. Uh, I went ahead and I've booked uh, Tucson Comic Con, uh, one in Salt Lake City, one in Denver in July. I'll be going to that, uh, a couple of book festivals uh, in here in Arizona. And I've got a few, every three weeks I have an event coming up and we'll see whether this works. You know, I, as far as Phoenix Fan Fusion may have been like a fluke, I don't know. But if I can go and even just I'd love to just cover my expenses if I can, you know, do that. So it's sustainable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was really excited because I thought that I would have to have do live events, meet people and have that fun encounter. Um, But if I can do it with just one book, then when I have two books, that should be better. And so my advice for anyone who's in my position with just one book is at least try live events. Uh, but if you're going to do it, I think you probably want to do it to the most professional level you can. Just present uh, present yourself well, because if you're just sitting there at a table with, uh, you know, you've written your author name on a piece of paper and pencil, and, you know, people aren't going to be as excited about what you're doing. So uh, that has been one area oh we'll see how well it works july 1st i'm driving up to denver uh and we'll see hopefully i'll connect with a lot of people there um honestly even if 
if I sell five books, I'll be thrilled. Uh, as far as online sales, that, wow, what an eye-opening experience, meaning you have to buy ads nowadays and everyone's buying ads. And so when you're in that conversation, things are tricky because most people who are successfully uh, making ads work is uh, they have multiple books out. And so they'll take their first book, discount it, and then put ads to the first book. And then when people read that, they'll want to hopefully do the next book. And so they'll have that book a little more expensive. And so if you can get read through to like three or four books in a series, it's a lot easier to make an ad pay off. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're paying $2 for someone to buy your ebook and your ebook gives you royalties of a dollar 47 that can't it's not sustainable right so i have so much to learn about all this but if i wasn't doing live events i would be i'd say i'd be a little discouraged by the challenge of selling books because selling online is just rising to the top of the of the noise is really hard and that's that's a mixed metaphor but uh, uh, because of live events and because I enjoy that thing, that kind of interaction, uh, I'm, I'm excited about the marketing and that, that kind of feeds into, into the online stuff. I've been contacting uh, Instagram accounts, uh, people who have uh, like YA fantasy review accounts and I've got a few people who have agreed to review the book. And so we'll see how that goes. Uh, they've been super, really friendly and excited about it. And I always, uh, I package my books in, in, in a nice way so that it, it looks like it's been mailed by the Terravenum Postal Service and stamps on them and a wax seal. And then I always put either a small map or if people want the explore one, like a 24 by 24 map that has been, uh, we, my kids and I, uh, we're constantly packaging books and we're, we, we get these maps, we stain them with coffee, dry them in the sun, then uh, use a, a, a heat gun to burn the edges. And so the whole idea is over deliver to the readers and in, invite them to come into the adventure. So I'm excited to see how that plays out on Instagram and YouTube has been an interesting challenge. I've contacted, I would say 10 channels or so, you know, just saying, Hey, it looks like my book would be a good fit for their audience. So I'll, I'll reach out to them. And I haven't had anyone uh, come back to me yet with like an affirmative. Mm -hmm. So I think that may be a harder nut to crack, even just getting your foot in the doors, but uh that's been i i think it i think what's happening is everyone has so many books on their to be their tbr list that it's like seriously even if i look at the books behind you on your shelves i've probably read i i can't see what the titles are but i'd be surprised if i've read more than 20 percent of them and they're probably all amazing books and so we, we live in a, an era where you could just read trad published books and have incredible stories. And so getting people to like, 
take an indie publisher seriously, I think you got to present yourself well, but also, you know, you've you just got to be patient and be okay with it if, if it takes some time. There's lots of things to unpack on what you just said. You know, you, I, I interviewed another guy um, and he said, to, don't expect to make money off your first book, you know, keep going. And I, and I thought that was great advice. Um, as an author and as somebody who, you know, produces something of, of such a professional quality as, as you did, and as I hope other people do as well, you know, you put so much effort in that and you want it to do well. And sometimes that can get discouraging that you're like, oh man, like I'm putting all this effort. Um, and I, and I know I have to put in more cause you know, the first book might not even make money. But, um, like you said, if you keep going and you have a backlist, that's where it comes in. And, and just because you're putting in all this effort, um, well, let's take you, for example, your booth was fantastic at, at Phoenix Fan Fusion. That's one of the reasons why I stopped by. I was on a different island. I saw your booth and I was like, I'm going to go over there and talk to him. Um, it, it will pay dividends if you, if you continue on. You mentioned a couple other things. Um, one of them, you said you had kids that are, they're helping you out and stuff. How do you stay balanced? You know, you're, you have a career, you know, wife, kids, uh, how do you stay balanced and, and be able to do it all? Well, I was just telling my wife last night how bad I feel uh, sometimes <laughs> when my girls, and I love hanging out with them, uh, but daddy's work is standing there staring at a computer, uh, you know, with a intense look on his face. And uh, sometimes I feel so bad because they're like wanting to do something or play. And I have to, I just have to stand here and write. I have to get this done or it won't happen. Uh, so sometimes I feel really bad, honestly, about like, it would be different. I feel like if I was, uh, if I had, if I had a giant shovel and I was smelting iron into a cauldron and I was like, stand back children, I'm doing something deadly and dangerous. And, but no, I'm sitting here like moving a cursor around the screen and hitting delete. And so, uh, you know, this is kind of outside of authoring, but as a dad, one thing I always try to model for my kids is <laughs> it's an uphill battle, but I hate it when I see, especially like teenagers uh, staring at their phones, just standing around, just staring and like disconnected uh, or even adults. And, and I get it. And I, I'm guilty of that too. Uh, but as a dad, everything you do, they're watching. And so in a way, it bums me out that they see me and I'm just standing there staring or sitting there uh, staring at a computer and I want to model my creative production and finishing things. And, and so finding balance uh, when my kids are in school, it's a lot easier because uh, there's that time of the day that's naturally like broken off. Right. Um, and, and I have a, 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 a job as well, like a side uh, job. I'm devoting most of my time to writing now, but I still have my wife uh, works and I'm uh, doing a, uh, uh, I actually do some marketing for other authors. I help them uh, get through the, the indie publishing process. Nice. And yeah, and it's been awesome because I learned a lot from that too. Uh, so I have not mastered this, but I will say that where I'm at now is that I say every day, okay, from this time to this time is daddy's time that he's got to write. 
Um, I talk about myself in third person to my children. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounded terrible. I think well, we all do. All fathers do. <laughs> uh, well, you know that as they get older, certain things do get easier. Uh, like when they were babies, because I've always worked from home. Uh, and I used to run a recording studio uh, in our house. So in, when we lived in Kentucky. So, uh, you know, it's always like, all right, it's nap time. I can go mix a song. I can go produce it. And now they're not taking naps. And so there's, it's a little easier. I can say, hey, you're going to have to go entertain yourself now. Mm-hmm. And so that, that has gotten a lot easier. But you know how it is, too. As a dad, you're like, these moments are precious. The, this time is, is, I can never get this again. This is golden. And do I really want to sit here and stare at an empty page? And so it has to be worth it. Right. And so that's been the hardest part is just discipline to say, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to make good use of my time and I'm not going to cruise Twitter. And, uh, and so that would be, that's the constant battle. And to that end, what I've done is, uh, when I write, I put on the sound of static or not static, sorry, rainstorms. Okay. And that kind of, at this point it gets my head i've done it so much it gets me in the mood to like when i hear it i start thinking uh creative thoughts and plot stuff and so that kind of audio trigger helps uh and also when i have like a little cup of of coffee uh so i've I've got the routine to get myself in that headspace but beyond that now the other thing i'm trying to do is to steal moments so if I have 15 minutes, if I'm waiting for everyone, hey, we're going to go to the zoo, uh, but my wife is finishing a, cooking something or whatever, instead of pulling out Instagram, I'll pull out my computer and just try and write a paragraph. And like stealing the little moments uh, adds up to a surprising amount of productivity. No, it really does. Uh, you shared two great tips or tricks. Um, you know, having an audio trigger, I think it's, it's helpful. Um, also, you know, I listen to, I have a playlist of just epic music. There's no words to it. It's just music of soundtracks, really. And then, uh, yeah. then too, those, those, those moments where, you know, you can be standing in line and like type something up with your notes on your phone or something and transfer that over. So that's that's great advice. So, uh, Dito, thank you so much for getting on with me. Go ahead and tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and where to find your book. Oh, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You can find my stuff at ditoabbott.com. It's D-I-T-O-A-B-B-O-T-T.com. And that's got links to everywhere you can check out uh, Debunked, Volume 1 of the Terravenom Chronicles. Perfect. And you have a list of everything that you're doing, all the events you're going to um, on your website. So if you're close to Denver or Salt Lake or wherever else you're going, um, I would recommend uh, talking to Dito about his book. It's, it's fantastic. So Dito, again, once again, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Troy Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and share with your friends.